a lot of people don't realise, Nick, that they think birds don't fly at night. Well, there's birds fly at night, and uh, you'll be flying around. And you quite often see pelicans and and seabirds, and you don't expect them to be there. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show by helicopter aircrew for a helicopter aircrew. Each week, we explore the world of helicopters with the people that fly and support them. You can check out the latest on the blog at rotarywingshow.com or subscribe on iTunes. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back to episode three. In today's episode, we're going to be learning a bit more about night vision goggles or NVGs and how they're being used in helicopter operations. And to do that, we're joined by an Australian pilot, Richard Mars. Of the flying, I've done some of the, the most demanding of it has been on that done on NVGs. It can really increase your workload as you have to constantly sort of work on your scan and moving your head to compensate for the, the limited field of view that you actually get through the goggles and that lack of peripheral vision that we rely on during the day. Having said that, it's also been some of the best flying I've had a chance to do. Sometimes you have to like almost pinch yourself as you're doing it because uh, it can be a really spooky feeling when you're, you're flying at low level uh, between the, the hills and, and you glance outside of the goggles and outside of the aircraft and it's just completely black. You can't see a thing uh, unaided. And yet looking back out through the front through the goggles, uh, you can see the trees and the terrain and you're, you're flying there at low level. And in a more of a, a military scenario, uh, when you're completely blacked out in the aircraft and you're uh, hovering a reference off the trees just off the rotor tips uh, while you're doing a, a hoist, and again, unless you're looking through the, the goggles at the trees and you're looking outside, it's just completely, they're completely invisible, but you just know that the trees are there even though you can't see them. Uh, so yeah, pretty pretty freaky stuff and they allow us to do some amazing things as far as our helicopter capabilities go. So look, I hope you get a, a heap out of listening to the interview today, especially if you've never touched or, or never worked with uh, night vision goggles before. Before we do that, though, in the last episode, so episode two, I spoke with Bob Fierst about flying in the wire environment. This week, I was able to get along to Bob's course as part of his current Australian roadshow, and it was a, a shortened combination course. So the morning, we covered off low, uh, low-level low crew resource management, or, or CRM, and then in the afternoon, we looked at uh, flying in the, in the wire environment. It was Excellent, really practical information. On the CRM side, I used to be a, a CRM course facilitator in the Army, and I've attended a, a number of different CRM courses by different companies. Uh, each of them has a, you know, a different flavor and slightly different information. But here on, on Bob's, there was just a, a bunch of information here that I hadn't actually been exposed to in other courses. And, and some of the big aspects was it was really tailored to helicopter crew operations. So we're talking pilot, air crewman, spotter, nurse, doctor, uh, lineman, rather than some of the other courses, which are, I guess, more traditional, uh, like an airline pilot uh, CRM courses. And it dealt with the scenarios and methods where reaction time and time to deal with the problem at low level is at a real premium, where you just have to get the message through straight away or react straight away, uh, just due to the low level nature and the, and the closeness of obstacles. Again, in contrast to more of like an airline cockpit where most emergencies, the pilots have a bit of time and altitude to work through the, the problem. So look, yeah, really highly recommended course. So if you haven't listened to episode two, I'd uh, encourage you to go and check that out uh, after this one. 
So a big shout out to the Queensland police crews that were there, the Aeropower guys who thankfully paid for me to attend the course, so thanks heaps, and the uh, Careflight air crew and support staff that were there. Uh, There's a bunch of other folks I didn't get a chance to talk to. And of course, to Bob and Lynn from uh, Utilities Aviation Specialist for actually running the course and, and coming out to Australia and, and, and doing this series of uh, courses here. Now, someone else that was on the course this week is the gentleman you're about to hear from. So without further ado, let's crack into the interview and we're talking with Richard Mars. Richard Mars, thank you for joining us on the Rotary Ring Show today. And I've got to say, does anyone by your mum actually still call you Richard? Uh, no, Mick. No. Hey, how are you going, mate? Um, no, everybody <laughs> calls me Dicky, and that's fine. It's, it's something that's stuck for many years now. And, uh, in fact, my oldest brother, Mike, um, he started that off as a bit of a joke, but it just stuck. So yeah, everyone calls me Dicky. <laughs> yeah, as long as I've known you, it's, it's always been Dicky. But uh, yeah, I was just going to say, like when we actually get towards the end there, and, and folks, if you're listening, you want to find out more about uh, Dicky. His website's actually uh, richardmarsmwas.com, and uh, we'll drop that that link again at the at the end of the interview. But Dicky, when I met you, I was a, uh, a wide-eyed, brand new pilot into One Seven One Squadron there at Oki on, on Iroquois. So that's the first time I bumped into you. Absolutely. How did you get into helicopter flying? Well, it's funny. When I was when I was twelve, I was at the school and uh, there was a the Westpac rescue helicopter from Sunshine Coast came up, and uh, I think they were they were charging thirteen dollars for you know a quick flight, and I just desperately tried to find some cash and I managed to do it and I went for a fly and uh, for me that was just a pivotal point. I thought, no, nah, I'm going to do this. As a, as a career and something I'm going to love. So eventually that just led into I joined the Air Force um, out of school and became an engineer working on F-111 uh, aircraft and then uh, changed over to the Army to become a helicopter pilot. And, uh, yeah, that's how I got into helicopters. And with along the way having a few uh, model helicopter experiences just to learn about the aerodynamics because, you know, you want to be fascinated by these things and find out how they work. So, yeah, that's pretty much how I got into helicopters. Yeah, We're going to be talking about night vision goggles and night vision devices today, but, I mean, we could do a whole heap of different interview on the fact that you're actually flying um, Iroquois or Huey gunships uh, when I met you. So you're downstairs in the in the gunship troop. Absolutely, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, heading out and uh, shooting miniguns off the side of helicopters around Shoulder Bay. So, I mean, that folks would be so jealous just to appeal you with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that ties into the NVGs as well, and it's quite a spectacular event when you head out there and you've got uh, the miniguns um, pumping out around 10,000 rounds a minute each side with four ball, one trace. So that's uh, one trace of bullet after every four normal bullets, and it looks like, essentially looks like a laser beam coming out of uh, each gun because there's just so many rounds coming out. It's uh, quite spectacular. But anyway, like you say, we can talk about that another time if you like. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. That's, that was pretty amazing flying. All right, so yeah. then basically after you left um, the Iroquois Squadron, uh, there was four of you guys, I think, went ahead across and did the instructing at the uh, at the school, so still within the Australian Army. Yes. Uh, what happened? Where would you go from there? So what's the what was your sort of career progression from that point? Yeah, so I, I started instructing, as you say, and I did many years uh, teaching all the ab initio courses um, at the School of Army Aviation, and then um, eventually led out into industry, uh, started flying for Careflight, Gold Coast, and also here in, uh, or in Toowoomba. So for flying... For folks overseas or who may not know what Careflight is, so Careflight is a, a rescue uh, 
helped organisation in uh, in Queensland. Yeah, so operating aeromedical retrievals, um, you know, primary roadside and also hospital transfer kind of work. And uh, Bell 412 helicopters, uh, also uh, just been training on a squirrel and we had a, a Bell 230, which was uh, quite a nice helicopter to fly as well. Essentially, you know, industry at that time was was not embracing the, the night vision goggles. Um, was just starting to come into the industry. From here, five, Nick, uh took a position with Toll Helicopters in the Solomon Islands. Um, and the, the main operation over there was uh, the Regional Systems Commission in support of the Australian Federal Police. So the use of MBGs over there was uh, the, you know, one of the main uh, factors. So being an all-weather operation, um, some quite challenging MBG flying was is conducted over there as well, and that, you know, including fast roping, repelling, uh, winching, and it's quite challenging environment. Yeah, so, so it's definitely dark. There's not much, um, not much uh, other uh, lighting there in the Solomon Islands at night time. Absolutely. So uh, there's, there's not that much cultural lighting uh, from towns and things. So when you're out and about the, you know, very thick jungles and mountainous terrain, and uh, quite often a fair bit of overcast, um, you know, contributes to quite a, a dark environment, which, you know, is is actually it's not too bad. There's there's it just develops your MVG skills such that you can operate in wide variety of uh, environments here in uh, challenging light conditions. So uh, that was a fantastic opportunity. And uh, just recently I've come back to CareFlight uh, just to uh, be back with the family. And um, uh, CareFlight here now is um, using NVGs, which is fantastic. And it's it's really become you know the, the way of the future for aeromedical flying uh, with helicopters here in Australia. Uh, just because of the versatility and flexibility in the night environment. Now, you're an NVG assessor now as well as a, a check and training captain, or is that the terminology? Yeah, well, I hold a, a CASA NVG testing officer approval, and uh, I'm an NVG instructor, and also a, a CART, what they call a CART 217 NVG training and checking captain. So that's that's you know, what that small component's integral to the organisation. Um, but the other ones can be used by uh, any provider. Yep. Dickie, many people listening, their probably only experience of MBGs will have been what they've seen in, in movies uh, and maybe you know photos from Afghanistan, things like that. Uh, so yep. if someone's just seen them for the first time, uh, you know they, they do look like binoculars, but they, they work quite differently. So can you just take us through the physical construction and, and actually, I guess, the, how, they, how they work? Yeah, no worries, Nick. So... Yeah, but as you say, they do look like binoculars, but they don't actually have any magnification um, element to them. So it's just essentially one-to-one. So what we have is light coming into the front of the goggles, which is like a photon of light. It's a, a photocathode which changes that into an electron, which and it continues along the MVGs and hits a thing called a microchannel plate. It's millions and millions of little tiny glass tubes and when the electron enters the glass tube, it uh, has power applied to it, and it, those electrons essentially start to cascade, produce a fair bit of, or a whole bunch more uh, electrons exponentially, which then uh, transmit through onto a phosphor screen to um, turn it back to light for us, essentially like a TV screen, so that we uh, get that magnification of the image, which is how, essentially how it works. It's, a little bit tricky to talk about it over the phone, but uh, yeah, you get the idea. 
Yeah, and that's a big thing I found too. Like, you know, it is like looking at two little tiny TV screens a couple of centimetres off your eyes rather than actually looking through a telescope where you're looking through, um, you know, visual lenses. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Which has its own issues. But um, (laughs) why the green colour, Dickie? Why are all MBGs and and night vision things normally green? Absolutely. Well, the main reason um, that GOMs are green is because the the eye has a, a. its natural um, heightened sensitivity is in and around the 555 nanometer range, which is green. So uh, the benefit of that is because the eye is more sensitive to it, the color green, we can uh, gain it down and, and have it a little bit, uh, or not as bright. So we actually have that added sensitivity in our eye with that color green. So uh, the MBGs just work a lot better with that color. All right, we're talking like how good they are as far as you know, day versus night. But uh, the mm-hmm. folks you've been working with, what kind of industries are using MBGs at the moment? Yeah, so I mean, the main players uh, using MBGs uh, besides the military is uh, your aeromedical uh, rescue helicopters flying in Australia and also the um, police agencies around the country. So they're, they're pretty much limited to being available to access them through the uh, U.S. Department of Defense such that they can uh, use them for uh, rescue and um, law enforcement activities. How good are they? Like, you know, again, movies are a bad judge of what the picture actually looks like, but um, do they turn night into day? How good is the the, the visual cues you get from them? Well, you know, it's it's quite interesting. They don't turn night into day, but they do give you an absolutely fantastic image uh, to enhance your nighttime operations. So if you look at your normal daytime visual acuity of the 2020 vision, the MVGs on the latest generation, the uh, Gen 3 Omnibus 4, will give you about a 2030. So for people who are not sure what that means, if you're standing uh, 20 feet away from an object with normal vision, on the if you were to see the same object on MVGs at 30 feet, uh, you'd be able to see it at 20 feet during the day. So it's pretty darn good. The normal nighttime vision for people is around 2200. So you know you know yourself when you're out there in the dark, it's it's pretty hard to see things. But the, the MVGs are certainly a very fantastic tool. Okay, and obviously it's a, you're only looking straight ahead. So what are some of the, you know, you know how much can you see Absolutely. So when you're looking through the, the night vision goggles, you're limited to a field of view um, of 40 degrees. So what you essentially, if you hold your, make a, a circle between your index finger and your thumb and hold that up about an inch from your eye, that's pretty much the field of view that you're going to see. If, the closer you can get it to your eye, the bigger the field of view that you'll see and the further away it, it reduces. But it all comes down to there's a whole bunch of techniques that we use uh, with the night vision goggles because uh, we can see a lot when we're flying around in the dark, but we still need to have access and be able to see all the instrumentation and uh, see the instruments, um, obviously, for backup in case we fly in the cloud, which can happen, and uh, also just to keep an eye on things. So that distance you have from your eye is critical, and, yeah, it's... You know, the optimal position is about 25 millimetre, but uh, it, it depends on the individual as well. Because you actually need to 
lower your eyes and look underneath it to look inside the um, inside the cockpit and the instruments like that because uh, we can talk about the focal range in, in a moment, I guess. But uh, I yep. guess if people listening, you're not actually looking inside at switches and, and your gauges through the the MVGs. Exactly right. So you're looking underneath. The goal is to look at the uh, the instruments in the cockpit. Yeah. And can you blow off the instrument flying at night time, or like are you purely visual, or is it still uh, very much a mix between instrument flying and visual flying? Look, it, it is very much a combination of the two. The, you know, that's part of the um, the training that comes with flying on MVGs is that you can get lulled into a sense of security where you can see everything. It's just, well, this is fantastic. Everything's green, but it's just like similar to daytime. But the thing is, with the limited field of view, we need to continually monitor the aircraft um, as you normally would. And obviously, with the, without the peripheral vision cues that you do have in the daytime, it is becomes a very much a habit, and it's a very deliberate kind of scan that we use. You mentioned a couple of different models that um, that you're using. You know, what sort of other models are you aware out there? And I guess if people are, you know, because again, I've heard of, you know, Ambus 6 and Ambus 9, I can't remember which ones we used. Um, yeah. Uh, are folks mainly using the, the goggles out of the, the States uh, or is there, there are other models on the market that are, are able to be used? Yeah. Um, well, the Ambus 6, um, when we were using those back in the, back in the day, um, have subsequently been superseded by the Ambus 9, which is a, just the latest generation. And uh, that's pretty much been set by uh, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority as the benchmark for industry. So uh, everybody out there is flying on Anvis 9s. Um, there are other MVGs available to use. I, I don't know a huge amount about the, the other brands because I've never used them, but I'll stick with the Anvis 9s, which are my bread and butter. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Okay, so let's go through some limitations then. So these are, you know, they're obviously not a, a panacea for everything, um, and that's why there's training involved in how to use them uh, correctly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, where, where can they fall down? Well, you know, there's a whole bunch of um, limitations that need to be taken into consideration. So lighting is, is a critical thing. So we're talking about external, so things like the moon, stars, ground lighting. Yeah, and, and that can... They, uh, the moon plays a pivotal part in, in how good the MVGs are. So on a very dark night, you know, you can still see a lot of stuff, but you do, the, the MVGs have to work much harder and that can cause um, things like what they call scintillation. So it looks like there's, you know, light crackling all over the the, the little tiny TV screen, for want of a better word. Yeah, so um, it's like heavy, heavy static. Almost. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And then um, on a very, like a, a full moon, you've all seen a beautiful big moon when it's overhead. You know, you can go outside in summer and you can enjoy the outside at night. Um, and when you're wearing night vision goggles on those nights, there's almost almost too much light. And what happens on in that case is that all the contrast that you would normally see all blends in together. So a full moon can actually be a bit of a hindrance to the night vision goggles as opposed to helping. Yeah, it's pretty um, counterintuitive. Absolutely, yeah. You wouldn't think that, but you know, anywhere from a quarter to up to uh, just over half moon is, is absolutely fantastic for um, flying around on night vision goggles. That's the optimal time. The the other thing is people may think, oh, you know, ground lighting will help, but ground lighting's okay. Um, what what happens 
uh, generally is that when you look at bright lights under the NVG, the, it has a gaining function. So uh, a bright light, it will dim it so that anything surrounding that bright light will dim down as well. So uh, a technique that we quite often use when we come land back at the airport and if there's bright lights, uh, runway lights, etc., is we might just turn our heads such that those lights are outside of the field of view and then the goggles will gain back out and we'll see much more fidelity uh, in the image. So th- th- there's a lot of intricacies involved in the training and hints and tips to make them work for you, especially in the low-level environment. But How do you find it when you're flying over like a, a built-up area, like over a city? We kind of often found like, like there's that much ground lighting that uh, unless you're looking in the shadow, that's where you're kind of using MEGs, but with that peripheral, with the, the ground lighting, um, it almost you know, took away how much you had to use the MVGs. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it, it becomes a bit of a trade-off. Obviously, you still can see a lot more than if you don't have them on in that, in that case, like flying over Brisbane City. But my preference still then is just leave them on and continue to fly along. And then you can just take glimpses underneath and you can identify things sometimes a little easier, like red lights that are associated with buildings and and just mark a beacons and things like that. So, yeah, it, it does become a, a, a little bit trickier in that environment. But once again, that just comes down to, you know, discipline and training for, for multiple environments with the night vision goggles. Do you guys modify your flight speeds from uh, day Absolutely, yeah. So a lot of companies are different, but essentially anything uh, above 500 feet, we're good for a VME, which is the maximum speed we can go. And anything below 500 feet, uh, the speed is dropped back um, to 80 knots or less. It depends on what company you, you work for, but it's some companies go for progressively slower as they get lower. Yeah. And what's the limiting That's factor? There? It's just the um, the visual distance, uh, like the, how far you can actually visually see through them. Yeah, exactly right. So because you're still flying around in the dark, essentially at low level, there's still some there's still a lot of hazards out there that may not become apparent uh, as easily as they would during the daytime. So, for instance, staunchions for wires in wire environment, towers, and you know anything that's associated with that low-level environment, including bats. And a lot of people don't realise, Nick, that they think birds don't fly at night. Well, there's <laughs> birds fly at night, and uh, you'll be flying around, you quite often see pelicans and, and seabirds and... And, uh, you know, you don't expect them to be there, but they birds fly at night. So all those, all those things uh, in that low-level environment is, uh, yeah, that's the reason why we bring the speed back, just to keep us, our reaction times better and be, you know, to avoid those uh, hazards that can be there. All right, and I know this is a couple of days worth of ground school, but if we just quickly whip through some things then. So let's talk about um, uh, perhaps uh, battery, how long the batteries last and some of the, the basic sort of failure uh, conditions and considerations that you might take. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the battery packs always have a, a primary and a secondary pack, and, and uh, generally they're just AA batteries. In most cases, you'll get between 20 and 30 hours of running time out of a set of batteries. So, you know, you could get it up to 60 hours between the two sets. So the, the, the basic premise of how it works is You'll run off the primary pack, and when it gets to a low voltage, 
it's recognising, and on the actual MVG mount in front, or front of the helmet, you'll get a flashing red light. If you get a, fresh, a flashing uh, red light, then you can just go to your secondary set of batteries, and when you return uh, from the flight, just replace the the, the primary batteries. So uh, you get some. There's, there's always there's a redundant system there, and also a good indication for when it's time to change those batteries out. Yeah, it's pretty scary when you are down low and it's dark and you're actually flying MVGs and it just goes black on your goggles. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah. It, it, well, it, as anyone can probably imagine, you know, if, you, if you're driving along the highway and someone turns your lights off, it's, it's going to get very scary very quick. But the, 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 the thing that even is good for helicopter pilots who are using the night vision goggles in this environment is you do have airspace, so... It's probably safer than being in the car if that was to happen. So essentially, it comes down to training and drills. So if that was to happen, people, be what you need to do is roll the uh, wings level, or, or just go to a uh, wings level attitude and commence a climb, get away from the obstacles, and then uh, rectify the uh, failure. So generally, uh, if if it was a battery failure, then you just swap two other batteries, or if it was something else, then There'd be another crew member there to help out, and we're also required to carry a spare set of MVGs, so we can swap those out if required. Is there any single pile MVG ops that you know of? It's allowed, um, but there's restrictions on the single pile MVG, so essentially airfield to airfield operations. To, to start landing at what they call a HLS standard or a HLS basic, you need to go to two crew. And, and essentially that's just so that there's more opportunity for the crew to identify hazards, obstacles, and look out for the aircraft. Yeah. Well, that's a bit about the equipment then. What about us as the, I guess, a weak link in the chain as being, being humans? Uh, what do we have to deal with uh, there with using MBGs? Yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of illusions and a whole bunch of factors that make you know, the fatigue levels on MVG are a little higher, so the fact that you've got that extra weight on your head, you have to do more deliberate and larger identifying features in that green uh, monochrome environment. So, Dickie, with the fatigue side of things, are regulators actually including that in legislation uh, and anticipating or adjusting flight hours and duty times for that? Yeah, absolutely. So each operator can also... Um, put down what they think is um, a reasonable amount of NVG hours. And uh, it started off as uh, four hours of NVG flight time in, in a duty period. Uh, however, that's starting to be relaxed and a lot of operators are p- applying their own fatigue risk management to that and extending it out to the six-hour mark and, and the like. A lot of that is obviously with, in consultation with their NVG chief pilots as well to ensure that they're uh, in a good condition to continue flying um yeah so the fatigue management side of the house is um very well looked after in industry for flying on night vision goggles as you know they are a little bit more fatiguing yeah all right what else we got okay so peripheral vision uh, as i said before you know you're dealing with a 40 degree field of view so uh, you know there's bigger head movements and the, and the scanning techniques that are involved the peripheral vision is not there, so it is something that you need to get used to. And, and, and the key thing where that becomes critical is down the low-level environment where you know, helicopter pilots uh, in particular uh, on approach would 
and they turn their head to assess their rate of closure when they're coming back to the hover. But at night time, it's very difficult to pick up, so bigger head movements um, are required. But in, in, intrinsically with that, people need to also uh, not move their heads too quick because you'll end up with some uh, vestibular issues there where you know your inner ear will, will topple and uh, when they're moving their head quick with such a limited field of view, you can get spatial disorientation. We want to try and avoid that, and that all comes down to really good training and uh, deliberate scanning techniques. Um, the other, what else we got there? Um, there's a whole bunch of illusions when, you're, when we're close to the ground. You know, for for, for instance, um, when landing in long grass, you, you you can come down to say a three foot hover, and you might have a, a foot of grass, and it will just start waving, and as it normally does in the daytime. But on MVGs, it's it's particularly tricky to pick and drift in that environment. One thing I like to teach guys is to look at the space between spaces in that case. So the, at, the, at the roots of the grass and, and the black dirt and stuff in between them becomes a focal point as opposed to looking at the grass itself. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of ways to work around these, um, all these illusions, but once again, it just comes down to good training. All right, so we looked at the, the goggles, we looked at us as humans. Uh, the other thing, like, I guess the other part of the system is the aircraft themselves. So it's not as though you're yeah. just jumping in a, in a robby and uh, whacking on some goggles on your head and uh, and off you go. Uh, there's a bit more uh, setup involved. Yeah. the um, I mean, the aircraft lighting needs to be completely changed. It needs to be uh, compatible with the NVGs. And, and by doing so, uh, when you look through the, the night vision goggles at the... Uh, instrument came in, it's, it's always illuminated in a green fashion and by traditionally these days it's LED lighting, it would just appear black. So we don't want to be looking inside the cockpit if we had, say, uh, you know, a normal kind of GA aircraft that might have red or white um, nighttime lighting. Yeah, it would bloom out the goggles and it would uh, be a real hindrance to the, the operation. So... The aircraft has to be set up completely uh, prior to conducting any NVG operations just to keep it nice and safe. Things like searchlights. So yep. we remember using, we use two, depending on which one we are, you'd actually use, like the, your normal daytime, well, not daytime, but your normal sort of white light searchlight on occasions. But then uh, you've also got a infrared searchlight. Are you guys using those on most machines? Yeah, so definitely um, having the steerable searchlight is, is more pivotal than an, an IR searchlight. If, if an IR searchlight's available, it, it is a lot better. Um, however, you know, in, it's not as common in uh, the civil industry. So uh, having um, the, the searchlight there, most of the rescue helicopters are using a night sun as well. That They are really good and you can make it work. It's, it's a little bit brighter than, than the IR searchlight, but uh, at the same time, if you're in an environment where you're winching, uh, you'd want to have the white light illumination just in case those goggles failed. And, and that's something we train for as well. So, And also positioning the night sun so that the crew in the back, the medical crew, can see what's going on and, and also be able to participate as the officer clearance if they were um, trained as such. Actually, that's a really good point we didn't touch on is well, one with the searchlight on with the uh, visible light, you actually get back a, a fair bit of the peripheral vision 
from outside the goggles. But the other thing Absolutely. is, you know, if, if you've got crew on board, and that could be nurses or any, anyone who's in the back of the helicopter, if the pilots are on goggles, all that they can see at the back is black, uh, whereas if you've got a flight on, at least it gives them something that they can actually have some kind of input. Yeah, exactly right. And, and the, the medical crew don't operate on MVGs, so the benefit of having white light is exactly as you say, if, if they were to be winched into you know, a position where they had to rescue a patient and they can still see, we can position the, the landing light, white light down, and that illuminate the area below the aircraft so that they can actually see what they're doing as well. So when you guys are operating off airfield to a road or something like that, will you actually have external light on, like a searchlight down or anything like that when you're coming for a landing? Yeah, we'll use um, the search, the steerable searchlight just to clear um, the undershoot and look around for obstacles, wires and anything that's going to hurt us. And um, quite often uh, when we get down to that low environment, we may take the uh, inclusion lights off as well because they... As you probably remember, when you have them on on NVGs, it's just like a big camera flash going off every few seconds, even though they're shielded such that they don't generally interfere with the night vision goggles. But in that low-level environment, they can still provide a bit of backscatter that can be distracting. Are you guys using NVG HUDs at all? Is there any uptake in the civil industry? No, not at the moment, Nick, no. It would be nice to see it. It's such a fantastic tool. And uh, I have used them previously, and uh, yeah, just get, having the ability to have your eyes out and see all that flight critical information is fantastic. But uh, as yet, no, it's, we're sticking with the, the very basic setup. And what we're talking about there, folks, is basically a uh, like an extra lens or some kind of uh, way of getting information from the aircraft into the goggles. So as you look through your goggles, you've actually got. Uh, symbology and speed and things like that on the on the TV screens in front of your eyes. All right, Dickie, what about um, pre-flight planning? So before you go, uh, is there considerations you're doing uh, before you're launching that are different on the MVGs as far as, you know, map marking or, or before you go? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the MVG planning is very detailed and deliberate and the we still take um, the same due care as we, as we normally would. It, it just allows us a little bit of extra flexibility such that we can cruise nice air far below lower safe, achieve missions with, you know, under different environmental conditions. What are your limitations with uh, flying below lower safe? Yeah, essentially, if it, what we need to request if we're in aircraft control environment is um, operations not above lower safe, and, and that allows us if we do have a, a an NVG failure and, and we didn't have another option, we're still cleared to climb to the lower safe altitude and then organise a recovery procedure from there. If someone wants to go out and fly on NVGs, what are the the hoops they have to to jump through, either organisationally or as an individual pilot? Yeah, so like as I mentioned before, the the MVG operations in Australia are limited to uh, aeromedical and law enforcement uh, activities and, and also some uh, fire incendiary uh, dropping operations, which um, I don't know too much about myself, but yeah, unfortunately, if you, you've got a Cessna and you want to go fly MVGs, it's, it's, it won't happen and it, it, I, I anticipate that it probably wouldn't happen uh, for a while to come, given the 
the fact that, you know, the MVGs are a fantastic tool. And, you know, if you were faced with the, the difference between a night VFR flight and it's quite dark and being able to see with them, even though it's been green, um, you know, it would be fantastic. But the, the low-level operations is where, you know, the, um, the, the additional training and importance um, kicks in. So, All right, Dickie, have you got any good tales or stories you can tell that sort of uh, encapsulate or type a lot of the things we've been talking about? Yeah, um, there's some quite interesting things that happen on uh, NBGs and one particular flight I was um, flying along in, in the Solomon Islands doing an aeromedical retrieval for a um, pregnant lady and um, it was quite a, a very well illuminated night, lots of stars and that's one of the things that people probably don't realise that when you look up into the stars at night you see you know thousands and thousands of stars. When you look at the stars like night vision goggles, you see millions of stars. It's just quite an amazing sight. But anyway, I was flying along um, with the crew and uh, we could hear this quite prominent kind of sound and it was getting louder and louder and louder and we're looking outside and we're going, I have no idea what's going on here. Like It just sounded quite bizarre and um, being in the tropics, the raindrops up there are quite large and we turned the, the searchlight on and uh, we're actually flying through torrential heavy rain but, but because of the, the night vision goggles operating on you know near IR kind of spectrum you see, just see straight through it so we weren't even aware we're still looking at stars and everything but we're flying through torrential rain so uh, yeah, it's quite interesting when that happens Nick that can be tricky with cloud too because if you're right on the edge of cloud, you can still see a little bit of the MVGs and that could be a little bit misleading about how close you are as well. Yeah, absolutely, Nick. And uh, it, it, can, it can become a bit of a, a tricky situation because in the first instance, you may not see the cloud at all and you'd be, you'd be flying around quite happy and seeing what you... Uh, being happy with what you can see and then all of a sudden you can fly in the cloud. And you may have been flying in the cloud for quite a while, not through the, the heavier stuff. And uh, so if there's, if there's any doubt, if, if, if you think, oh, I'm not sure if you're flying for any cloud here, then it, you know the, the easiest way to rectify that is turn the searchlight on and have a look and you can, you can quite quickly see if you're in cloud or not, and which is one of the checks we, we use when we're on descent to ensure that we're not in a, a cloud environment. Is there anything I haven't asked you yet that I should or uh, things that we haven't covered? It's, there's just so much to go into and uh, if we had some more time, I would love to go through some more. Um, if, if anyone's interested in learning about uh, night vision goggles, you know, you, if you head down to your local uh, rescue helicopter provider, I'm sure that the pilots would be more than happy to um, run you through and just you know, talk to you about how they use them and the like. And certainly if you come into Toowoomba, we'll, we'll make some time for anyone who wants to come and have a look. <laughs> and what I'll do too, because we've got folks all over the world, uh, if you're listening to this and you want to head over to the website and go to rotarywingshow.com, look for episode three. And if you leave questions there on the uh, on the show notes, we'll get uh, Dickie back and, and see if you can answer some of the questions there as well. Now, Dickie, if companies are looking to contact you about actually uh, setting up uh, MBG procedures or operations inside uh, the company or getting a uh, check and training done, uh, what's the best way they can get in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if they want to 
jump onto LinkedIn and my website is go straight to there. Uh, my contact details are on the LinkedIn website and yeah, I'd be happy to have a chat to anyone who wants to find out some more and or any companies you're interested in uh, NVG training and checking or testing and of in contact with a lot of uh, industry professionals as well who uh, hold the same and similar qualifications. So I've got a very good network of uh, MBG training and checking pilots that uh, I'm good mates with. Yeah, look, I reckon that part of the industry is going to just get bigger and bigger because it's the technology's there now, and uh, now that the training and regulation and things like that are catching up, it just makes helicopters so much more useful. Uh, so thank you, Dickie. That's uh, some really great stuff. Hey, thank you, Nick. Thanks for your time. It's been great fun. All right, folks, so yeah, head over to, uh, if you want to get straight to uh, Dickie's LinkedIn profile, if you go to richardmars, that's M-A-A-S.com, that'll redirect to uh, Dickie's profile. And thanks, dude. We'll uh, catch up with you again soon. Thanks very much, Nick. There you go, folks. For, for those who have never had anything to do with NVGs before, hopefully Dickie has given you a, a bit of a taste and a little bit more insight into the, the technology. It's still something that has limited reach outside of the, the military, police, or EMS work. But like all kinds of other technology, it's going to get cheaper over time and it'll push down further into the industry. NVGs just add such a, a, a big safety factor when flying at night and really increase the, the range of operational flights that helicopters can do of a, of a nighttime. I haven't seen it actually happen, but one of the stories around NVG flying uh, that I've been told during training, things like that, Again, it relates a bit more to a, a military operation. Is that the story goes that there's a group of soldiers were in an LZ waiting for a helicopter extraction, and they had a bunch of silent sticks with them to mark the, the landing point and attract the helicopter over to where they were. Now, they had IR or infrared silent sticks with them, which appear quite bright through the MVGs, but to the normal eye, when you're in, there in the, in the bush, uh, they actually look quite dark when, when they're working. So the soldiers kept cracking these silent sticks one after the other, trying to get them to, to light up. And, and as they cracked them and shook them and they wouldn't light up, they'd throw them on, on the ground, uh, thinking that they were broken because uh, they, they just couldn't see the light coming from them, not actually realising they'd had a, a bunch of infrared or IR sticks with them. And then when the helicopter did turn up through the MVGs, they could see this clearing in the bush with what looked like a, a bonfire of IR silo sticks that were packed on top of each other where the soldiers had just been cracking them open and throwing them down the ground and not realising they were all glowing. So not sure if that's true or not, but it sounds like something that uh, could definitely happen. If you have a, a good MVG story or questions around night vision goggles, then please head over to episode three uh, show notes over at rotarywingshow.com and leave the, the question or the comment uh, down at the bottom of the page in the comments section. Uh, and if I, can't, if I can't answer the question, I'll get Dickie back uh, to answer that there uh, for you guys. So talking about the website, you can sign up there to get an email alert when a new episode is released, and a bunch of folks have already gone ahead and done that. Our social media is also up and going, so if you head over to facebook.com forward slash rotarywingshow, and strangely enough, on Twitter, the same thing, so twitter.com forward slash rotarywingshow, uh, you can message me there, and look, I'd love to know more about where in the world you're flying from and the types of ops that you are doing. So you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter and, uh, again, connect with the show that way. This episode is, again, sponsored by trainmorepilots.com. You can find some free resources there that will help with your marketing of your aviation business, especially if, like, a, a heap of helicopter companies, your online setup looks like something from about 10 years ago. 
there's a heap of help there as well. So that is trainmorepilots.com. In the next episode, I chat with Dan Heath about the helicopter industry in China and what the conditions are like over there, actually on the ground for expats. And it's pretty eye-opening. Uh, and look, I think you'll really enjoy that interview too, so keep an eye out for that. You've been listening to the Rotary Wing Show. I'm Mick Callum. If you like the show and the idea of capturing helicopter stories from around the globe, then please spread the word and let more folks know. Thoughts and opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and the interviewees and don't reflect those of their employers. Till next time, fly safe. <laughs>